Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 20th audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will explain the social versus medical models of disability, disability and sexuality, what is accessibility, and more. Let's get started. Today's song is Prototype by Victoria Modesta. Victoria Modesta is a self-proclaimed bionic artist from Latvia exploring modern identity through performance, fashion, avant-garde visuals, technology, and science. In 2007, she had a voluntary below-the-knee leg amputation to improve her mobility and safeguard her future health. She reflected, that's when I understood the concept of working on this futuristic identity and how limitless it could be, she says. It's easy to transcend what you think makes a human body. In conjunction with the fall release of her new album, Counterflow, Modesta teamed up with neuroscientists, coders, and clothing designers for a show at Berlin's Music Tech Fest, where she used 3D printed nails and sensors on her wrists to trigger sound effects and shifts in lighting on her skin. I linked to the music video in the transcript, which I recommend watching due to its artistic direction and strong visuals. Modesta's work applies to today's lecture on disability, ableism, and embodiment. Let's begin this lecture by defining a few terms. The first is accessibility. When we talk about accessibility, what do we mean? Do we mean that an event is wheelchair-friendly? Do we mean that there is a sign language interpreter? Is there a translator for people who do not speak the primary language used at an event? Is there a lactation room for parents? Is there an all-gender bathroom? What about the cost of tickets? What about courses? Who gets to attend the course? How accessible are the materials? There will always be limitations to the reach of scholarly outputs, including this course. During the podcast, Organizing in a Pandemic, Disability Justice Wisdom, Disability Justice Advocate, Lydia XZ Brown remarked, We're never going to find a setup that works for literally everybody. In other work, Brown builds upon this concept, noting there is no one size fits all. There are always limitations to scholarly publications, artistic productions, activist plans, and communication strategies. It is important to understand the limitations to one's output to find the appropriate form the publication should take, or the class should be structured as, or the event should follow. In some cases, it might mean producing more than one kind of output. This is why for this course, I've created audio podcasts and written transcripts. It is imperfect, but expands access. Disability Justice 
Scholars and activists provide frameworks through which to approach this work of creating feminist and accessible public scholarship and communications. From a disability studies perspective, we need to think about the kind of barriers that prevent people from being able to actually access the materials that we produce. We also need to think about the social context that present that prevent someone from being able to actually interact with our work, to take classes, to read our artistic memoirs, and so forth. In addition, there is a matter of what hurdles exist in the work itself. One in five people in the United States lives with a disability. Around 6.2 million Canadians live with a disability, or roughly one in six people. In the United Kingdom, that number is around one in 4.7 people where 13.9 million people in the United Kingdom are living with a disability. As disability justice advocate, Alice Wong makes clear in her Disability Visibility Project and 2020 book of the same title, some disabilities are visible, others less apparent, but all are underrepresented in media and popular culture. It is because of this lack of representation we must listen to and recenter the perspectives of people with disabilities, especially when we think about making public scholarship inclusive and accessible, in making our events inclusive and accessible, in making our courses inclusive and accessible. Disability studies advocates, such as Alison Kiefer, use fuse feminist theory, queer theory, and disability studies. Other writers and activists such as Leia, Lakshmi, Pipsina, Samashina, encourage us to think of collective access not as a chore, but as a collective responsibility and pleasure in our communities and political movements. I want us to think critically about who is the audience for whom we are trying to make our work accessible and what can be done to increase access. Prioritizing accessibility not only benefits individuals with visible or known physical, psychological, or cognitive disabilities, while frameworks such as Universal Design, UD, at first appear to offer tools necessary to do this work, Amy Hamrise, Designing Collective Access, a Feminist Disability Theory of Universal Design, shows that while often taken for granted as synonymous with the best, most inclusive forms of disability access, the values, methodologies, and epistemologies that underline universal design require closer scrutiny. As Sasha Constanza Chalk likewise argues, universal design emphasizes that we should try to design for everybody and that by including those who are often excluded from design considerations, we can make objects, places, and systems that ultimately function better for all people. However, disability justice shares that goal, but also acknowledges both that some people are always advantaged and others disadvantaged by any given design, and that this distribution is influenced by intersecting structures of race, class, gender, and disability. Instead, Costanza Chalk and the Design Justice Network offer the framework of design justice. Design justice is a framework that aims to center the voices of people who are normally marginalized and directly impacted by the outcomes of the design process, including event organizing, making classes, etc. Prioritizing accessibility from a design justice perspective not only benefits individuals with visible or known physical, psychological, or cognitive disabilities, but works to ensure that participants with obvious or non-obvious disabilities and or chronic health conditions, people of all ages and body types, individuals across the gender spectrum, and of all sexual orientations from all class, racial, and ethnic backgrounds are able to fully engage in the program. 
rather than focus on making accommodations, which creates a burden for the individual participant and acts as a retroactive patch to overcome barriers in an environment or system, accessibility from a design justice standpoint means that you will design your event to be inclusive from the start. The goal is that the event or materials will not require adaptation or modification to remove barriers to participate. However, as noted by Lydia X. Ed Brown, this may mean that you produce multiple forms of the same material intended for different audiences. According to Constanza Chalk, design justice, in other words, requires that we specify, consider, and intentionally decide how to best allocate both benefits and harms of the objects and systems we design with attention to their use context. She clarifies that it doesn't mean the lowest common denominator design, quite the opposite. It means highly specific, intentional, custom design that takes multiple standpoints into account. It is not about eliminating the benefits of excellent design unless everyone can access them. Instead, it is about more fairly allocating those benefits. In addition, while design justice provides a useful approach for thinking through accessibility, it is not without its limitations. Sociologist Ruha Benjamin worries that over-reliance on design thinking means that in an unequal society, some humans will be prioritized over others in human-centered design. Further, Benjamin wonders if, in enrolling so many issues and experiences as design-related, it could also sanitize and make palatable deep-seated injustices contained within the innovative practices of design. Remaining cognizant of Benjamin's pushback about design and against design, I want us to acknowledge that while design justice is not the only framework available, it is useful for guiding how we approach design and accessibility. The biggest takeaway that I want you to have from this lecture is the difference between the medical model of disability, the social model of disability, and the affirmative model of disability. Ableism is discrimination in favor of able-bodied people. Ableism is rife in our society and throughout social justice movements even. There are specific forms of ableism. For example, autism is discrimination against deaf or hard-of-hearing people. In the medical model of disability, this view is that handicaps or disabilities stem from a defective body that either has to be cured or set aside. So in this model, this medical model of disability, there is something about the body that medicine wants to fix. This is in contrast to the social model of disability. The social model says that it is a society, it's society that disables certain bodies and people. Certain bodily features are favored in our society and others are disfavored by the built environments as well as social attitudes. Society made certain people disabled, not their bodies. For example, there is nothing inherent in that buildings have to be built with stairs, but stairs restrict access for certain people. We can see this with narrow doorways or stairs that block wheelchairs that make places like McGill's campus so inaccessible. We can see this with technologies that rely on sight or rely only on hearing. We can see this with having the education system favor only certain types of minds. Under the social model of disability, we see the strong influence of capitalism and productivity, reinforcing the belief that disabled workers are less productive than a non-disabled one. This is joined by a human rights model based on a human rights paradigm. This model emphasizes that disability-related problems stem from an inaccessible social structure as opposed to the disability itself. 
These models focus on environmental and attitudinal barriers that prevent people with disabilities from having equal opportunities in their societies. The affirmation model of disability is described as a non-tragic view of disability and impairment encompassing positive individual and collective social identities for disabled people grounded in the benefits of lifestyle and life experience of being impaired and disabled. This view has arisen in opposition to the personal tragedy model of disability and impairment and builds on the liberatory imperative of the social model. In this analysis, the affirmation model addresses the limitations of the social model through the realization of positive identity encompassing impairment and disability. The pity and charity model is when people with disabilities are often treated as objects of charity and pity. The charity model is an older and outdated model of disability. What it looks like, people in your community assume that you'll always need help and pity you. You're considered a burden requiring charitable, charitable resources for support. The pity and charity model of disability includes inspiration porn. This is in contrast to the affirmation model. So if you haven't heard of inspiration porn before, inspiration porn is the portrayal of people with disabilities as inspirational solely or in part on the basis of their disability. Inspiration porn is not about celebrating a person with a disability. Inspiration porn is about using that person because somehow that person's life is deemed by a non-disabled person as something that someone would not want to aspire to. So inspiration porn includes those posters such as an image of a woman with prosthetic legs in a racing position about to sprint and the text would read, so what's your excuse again? That's inspiration porn. And it's part of this pity and charity model, which is opposed again to the affirmation model of disability. I now want to introduce you to the idea of crip theory by Robert McCrewer. McCrewer is an American theorist who has contributed to fields in transnational queer and disability studies. He is currently professor of English at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Crip theory builds on queer theory. Both disability studies and queer theory are centrally concerned with how bodies, pleasures, and identities are represented as normal or as abject, both, but both fields actually inform the other. Both theories use reclaimed terms, as queer is a reclaimed pejorative, so is crip. McCrewer examines how dominant and marginal bodily and sexual identities are composed and considers the vibrant ways that disability and queerness unsettle and rewrite those identities in order to insist that another world is possible. Like how queer theory puts sexualities and gender on, continu on continuums, crip theory puts disability and ability on a continuum. As there is no such thing as the embodiment of the idealized heteronormative person, in crip theory, there is no such thing as the fully able-bodied person. Some of us need glasses, some wheelchairs, others have allergies, others have AIDS. Crip theory allows us to look at the body and able-bodiedness with greater fluidity. It breaks down the binary between abled and disabled, allows for temporary disabilities like a broken bone. Crip theory challenges compulsory able-bodiedness as queer theory challenged compulsory, compulsory heterosexuality. However, there are challenges about the usefulness of crip theory, with some people arguing that it's a theoretical framework that doesn't bridge the gap between the academy and the actual lives of disabled people. Instead, crip theory could silence actual disabled experiences. This is why Alice Wong argues that there is an importance in stories. Alice Wong states, 
I believe first-person stories are approachable, accessible, and direct. A reader learns from a person's individual perspective, and it feels like an intimate conversation between the reader and author. I'm going to play a bit of a clip in which Alice Wong is speaking about this topic. The video has captions. One example of ableism within a context of healthcare is to look at the language of disability. Speaking broadly, the focus is on a person's functional limitations, impairments, or deficits. Discussions on quality of life tend to equate well-being and health as the absence of illness and disability. Because of my apparent physical disabilities, many people, both strangers and acquaintances, presume that my life is one that's difficult and full of suffering. I am totally dependent on personal assistance for my daily activities and cannot breathe without ventilatory support. For some people, that is a undignified, unmanageable, and pitiful way of living. Some of these people would rather be dead than be in my position based on perceived loss of control, weakness, and fragility. And that's ableism. Yes, I experience pain. Yeah, suffering, but that doesn't mean my life isn't rich and full. Yes, I need a lot of help, but that doesn't mean I can't make decisions for myself on how I want to live. And by the way, I'm not here to sugarcoat or gloss over the real pain and suffering people experience, disabled or not. What's problematic is when an entire population is presumed to be in need of a cure or relief from pain and suffering. Those cultural assumptions drive the way we think, organize, and deliver healthcare. In this clip of her talk, Resisting Ableism, Wong discusses the way the medical profession and medical care treats disabled people as if their lives need to be fixed. She speaks to the value in her life and the value of disabled people. There is a power in first-person stories to refute the medical model. The new documentary, Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution, released in 2020, brings forward more first-person stories. The film looks at the American disability rights movement from a summer camp to 504 to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Crip Camp starts the narrative in 1971 at Camp Jened, a summer camp in New York described as a loose, free-spirited camp designed for teens with disabilities. Starring Larry Allison, Judy Human, James Lebrecht, Denise Sherry Jacobson, and Stephen Hoffman, the film focuses on those campers who turn themselves into activists for the disability rights movement and follows their fight for accessibility legislation. In this film, you can see the intersection of different social movements. During a protest sit-in, the Black Panther Party brought food to support the disability rights activists. Something discussed in the film, in Victoria Modesta's work, and Eli Clare's Body Shame, Body Pride, Lessons from the Disability Rights Movement from 2013, is that part of the dehumanizing discourse around disability 
and around people with disabilities is that people with disabilities are often treated as not having sexual autonomy. Eli Clare, like Modesta, argues for a right to sexuality. Poet, essayist, and activist Eli Clare helped to organize the first ever Queerness and Disability Conference and speaks widely about disability, queer identities, and social justice. I'm now going to quote Eli Clare at length from the 2002 talk, Sex, Celebration, and Justice, beginning quote. First, a challenge about sex. And when I say sex, I don't mean a code for queerness. You know, when the straight, well-meaning college professors ask me ever so politely to come to their schools and talk about disability and sexuality, they aren't requesting a presentation about heterosexuality, much less the whole universe of sexual possibility. Rather, they mean that other sexuality, that exotic sexuality, that queer sexuality. I got asked by non-disabled queer activists to be part of panels about sexuality and disability. I never know if they're really serious about doing anti-ableism education or if they truly just want another believe it or not freak show as hell all about what crips do in bed. But here in this room when I say sex I'm not talking code. Rather I mean the steamy, complex, erotic, sometimes pleasure-filled, sometimes mundane, sometimes mystical, sometimes painful, sometimes confusing behaviors, activities, and fantasies we call sex. It's a radical act, a daring act, a brand new act for queer crips to talk about sex. So here I'm using, again, the language that Claire is using in the talk. So Claire then speaks about the kinds of stereotypes and pejorative language that people with disabilities face, particularly related to sexuality. Claire continues the quote. On one hand, as queers, we are perverse, immoral, depraved, shaped as oversexed child molesters or as invisible creatures legislated out of existence. And on the other, as crips, we are entirely desexualized or fetishized or viewed as incapable of sexual responsibility. What a confounding maze of lies and stereotypes. We're the wheelchair-using quad who can't find a date, the bi-woman amputee sought after pursued and even sometimes stalked by devotees, the mostly straight men who fetishize amputations, the cognitively disabled dyke who is told in so many ways that she's simply a sexual risk to herself in the world. Never are we seen, heard, believed to be the creators of our own desires, our own passions, our own sexual selves. Inside this maze, the lives of queer crips truly disappear. And I say it's time for us to reappear. Time for us to talk sex, be sex, wear sex, relish our sex, both the sex we do have and the sex we want to be having. Claire here, end quote. Claire here brings forward the importance of sexuality and its role in personal agency, the power in claiming this power in sexuality. Claire speaks about having to fight against stereotypes. In the transcript, I have also linked to a video by Lacey Green and student disability activist Olivia in which they delve into a world of disability and sexuality. They begin by talking about Olivia's disabilities, ableist language, and stereotypes about people with disabilities. In the second section of the video, Olivia's successes and challenges with dating are discussed. In the third section, Lisi and Olivia discuss various disabilities and how they are accommodated during sex with the help of things like medication, wedges, attendance, and wheelchairs. Eli, Claire, and Olivia bring forward important issues related to sexuality and disability. Disability rights advocates show the importance of communication and consent related to sexuality and to the ways we all move about the world. Disability rights activists show the importance of systematic changes and being able to allow all people to thrive. Our current systems of labor and medicine are so unsustainable for so many people. We are taught to treat any issues we face as individual problems. 
We are so often told that this is an individual problem that requires self-care as that individual solution. As Ashley McCrea in the 2018 piece, self-care won't save us, writes. In fact, mental health problems are strongly correlated with poverty, vulnerability, and physical health conditions, with the causation going both ways. Furthermore, there's a big difference between those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to take time off of work for doctor's appointments and mental health days, and those who can't, those of us who have children or other dependents to take care of, and those who don't, those of us who have the financial independence to take a break from our obligations when we need to, and those who don't. Not all people have the same access to help or even access to their own free time. Employers increasingly expect workers to be available whenever they are needed, both in white-collar jobs and precarious shift work, and in the heavily gendered responsibilities of being a parent, studying, a nighttime Uber gig to cover the bills, or a long commute from the only affordable area in the city, and the stress of life will pile on even as it soaks up the time that you're supposed to set aside to relieve that stress. Funding cuts are in fashion across a plethora of Western countries, both to healthcare and to other services that indirectly affect our health, especially the health of people who need additional support to lead the lives they wish to live, or even just to survive. The rhetoric around self-care is flattering but flattening, treating its audience as though the solution to their problems is believing in themselves and investing in themselves. This picture glosses over the question of what happens when society does not believe or invest in us. She argues, By finding the solution to young people's mental ill health, be it a diagnosed mental health problem or simply day-to-day stresses of life, in do-it-yourself fixes and putting the burden on the target audience to find a way to cope, the framework of self-care avoids having to think about issues on a societal level. In the world of self-care, mental health is not political, it's individual. Self-care is mental health care for the neoliberal era. McCrea joins disability rights activists in looking at how we need to fix these problems on a societal scale. It isn't individual. The ability to access care is impacted by race, class, gender, and ability, and disability. What kind of world can we build to enable people to flourish? How can we build an accessible society in which people are able to have access to pleasure? How can we create communities that enable this? For more courses on disability at McGill, see classes from Elizabeth Petitsas in Computer Science Education and Yolanda Munoz in GSFS. For more resources on making university campuses more accessible, refer to the link in the transcript to the Access UC Manifesto. This document explores ways to make University of California campuses more accessible and provides a great model for other universities to follow. The final two lectures for this class are on violence and environmentalism. All of the videos, songs, images, graphics used in podcasts and transcript belong to their respective owners and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sound is School Bell Dot Wave from 13F Panska, Stranska, McKayla, and the closing bell is from Inspector J's Bell Counter A Dot Wave of Freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in the Canadian Copyright Act that owns the permitted unauthorized use of copyrighted materials for specific mandated purposes in Canada. These purposes include research, privacy, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and privacy, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.